today? Yeah, I guess some grilled tenderloin. Um, and then do you want anything on the side? Uh, fries, sure, and a root beer. I'm in West Lafayette, Indiana, at, well, you'll get the wrong idea if I tell you the name. It's the Triple X Drive-In, but that has nothing to do with movies. It's a restaurant serving root beer, and the XXX is what you'd see on a moonshine jug in an old cartoon. Cartoons and other movies will be in my future, though, as I head from Chicago to Cinevent, the old movie convention in Columbus, Ohio, that's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. So join me and hoist a glass of root beer anyway. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Cinevent in Columbus, Ohio has been showing old movies and giving collectors a place to trade films, posters, and other memorabilia since 1969. In this episode and the next one, we'll visit the festival and talk to some of the people who make it happen, as well as some of the attendees, including film historian and critic Leonard Malton, who has a new book out collecting 50 years of fandom, and producer-director Michael Schlesinger on the legendary comedy team Biffle and Schuster. Who? And listen, we'll talk to a guy who's been to all 50 sin events. So the least you can do is never miss an episode of Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes. Thanks. We've talked about 50 for years, um, even, even before my father passed away in 2015. Michael Haynes leads the team that runs Cinevent. He took it over after the deaths of the founding generation, including his father, Steve Haynes. We'd been talking about that 50 needed to be a big deal. Um, so, you know, we started planning, you know, in earnest uh, as early as maybe July of last year with the film program. That's, that's generally always where we start. And it was a matter of going through and saying, okay, what are the, what are the things we want to do to make it special? Um, you know, we talked about the tribute films for the three founders, the commemorative book, things like that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, having Leonard Malden appear, that was sort of a, a surprise bonus that popped up early this year, January or February, uh, when uh, Goodnight Books, who put out his most recent book, Hooked on Hollywood, uh, approached us and said, hey, if we could get Leonard Malden to your show to launch a book, would you be interested? Yes, yes, we'd be interested. So, uh, so... So yeah, and, and then you know from there we had, of course, all the usual planning we have for the dealer's room and all that, and working with Morris on the auction and everything. So my wife and I, Angela, who, who work on this, we find that really exciting having the authors in. We think it's a great addition to the show. Um, and clearly from the, the reception the authors got, um, it's clearly something that our attendees like too. So uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say this uh, as... I think I'm remembering this right, and if I'm misquoting him, then my apologies. <laughs> would have been the Friday signing Leonard Malden had. I heard from someone that he said that that was the biggest book signing he'd ever had. Oh wow! Which that's if if that's true, that's 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 mind-boggling to me. Yeah. Uh, that this person who I, I grew up with him being ubiquitous in my home on television and, and from his books, um, that he'd have his biggest signing ever here. So if that's if that's true, then that just that just blows me away. How is getting prints uh, as we get further and further from the age of film? So actually, I think we used prints from more different sources this year than we have in any of the any of the years I've been doing things. Um, we keep coming up with new sources, um, and uh, some of them have large collections that we've just literally scratched the surface of. Um, so, I mean, I think getting prints doesn't seem to be difficult. I think the difficulty we run into is just that 
more and more things become available digitally, so it's harder and harder to find things that people don't have any other way to see. Right. Um, but yeah, finding the prints, we uh, finding the prints, we're doing great. And it seemed like there are a lot of uh, IB Technicolor prints this year, which I'm always kind of amazed that that exists in 16 at all, mm-hmm. let alone mm-hmm. that you had quite a number of them. Yeah. Um, and you know that's that's really an experience that is pretty unique to film, just because those you know glow and color in oh, a yeah. way that video can. It's just different. Yeah, we're very fortunate that we're able to have access to prints like those, and and that was one of the things for 50. We knew we wanted to make sure we had some good color prints. We do every year. The main dealer room at Cinevent is a vast hall, with table after table piled high with posters, stills, DVDs, 16mm prints, books, roadshow programs, t-shirts, everything a collector might want to collect. I ran into a couple of friends I see most years at festivals like Cinevent. Erwin Drobny, a retired Chicago history teacher, and Kerry Black, a Detroit librarian. So, is there anything that you you would jump on if you saw it? Uh, convention City, I think, with Joan Blondell. There are some <laughs> films that we're looking for, but mostly it's a surprise. There's the element of surprise. I see films not only I never thought were I, I never thought were even there. I never knew about there were movies here that I'd never heard of. That I, I didn't know I missed because I didn't know what they were. Now I know I missed them. I collect posters, mostly uh, detective, crime, and mystery stuff, uh, Sherlock Holmes or any of the series, Moto and Chan, and that's the stuff I really like. I don't see you weighted down yet, so you haven't found anything? No, I'm just uh, browsing, and then I make up my mind a little bit later. Have you had any great finds in the past? Yes, I remember I found a half sheet of uh, Bulldog Drummond Strikes Back here about 10 years ago. Very rare to get that poster. What, you, what are you guys looking for in particular? I don't know. I, I like I'm pretty eclectic. I like something that is, uh, I like the early pre-code, a, a good pre-code romantic film where uh, comedy with Warren William being as seedy and unpleasant as he possibly can, and sometimes even being mean to Loretta Young, which is very hard. That's the high point. It's nasty to Loretta Young. He's trying to compromise her. But so, yeah, a good pre-code movie is always worth fun. It's always fun. If your audience knows what pre-code is, but it is early 30s before censorship, and those are good. They don't know what pre-code is. I don't know what they're doing listening to this podcast. (laughs) That's true. Uh, What about you, Perry? Well, I'm looking for something out of the ordinary that I haven't seen before. Uh, I'd like to find a couple early Pola Negri's silent uh, films, and uh, uh, I'm also a Warren William fan and uh, would like to uh, find a couple of those also. So if they showed Humphrey Bogart here, you might take a pass and have a long lunch, but Warren William, you'd be there for sure? Right, because Humphrey Bogart, as excellent as he is, you can, f- you can see his stuff on TCM all the time, but uh, there's others that are much harder to find. One dealer stands out among the rest, Morris Everett, whose annual poster auction, conducted both live and online, is one of the top events in movie art collecting worldwide. Every year at Cinevent in Columbus, Ohio, this year now at the Renaissance Hotel, we run the Hollywood Poster Auction, hollywoodposterauction.com, and we run it on the Saturday of the convention, Uh, and it happens to be at 1 o'clock. It's usually around 800 lots, and we work on it all year long. It's the only auction that we run, although we have done auctions in London, New York, Los Angeles, and uh, Cleveland. We're from Cleveland. We have a store in Cleveland. We have the largest stock of movie posters in our store in Cleveland anywhere in the United States. Uh, We have 2 million photos and 200,000 posters, and nobody comes close to having the stock that we have. We specialize in vintage material, and our auction specializes in vintage material. When I say vintage, I mean 20s, 30s, and 40s. That's the area that we're best known for. Yes, we have Star Wars and James Bond, but we like the older material better. I've been collecting for 57 years and have the largest personal collection uh, in the United States. At one time, I had 198,000 pieces, all different, and lobby cards and posters. But I've now started to sell these, and people are flying in from all over the place, including Europe and Canada and Mexico, Dubai, in Kirtland, Ohio, at the last moving picture company. Um, I love the material. I still actually buy things. I just traded for three silent movie posters five, ten minutes ago. 
Um, and I love the material. The auction started in uh, 26 years ago. Uh, we did it in Cleveland for two years, and then we had a marriage between Cinevent and our Hollywood poster auction. We decided for the good of both of us, because we were in Cleveland and Columbus, only two hours apart, that it would be good for us to join together. We like to think that we are uh, a collector's auction for collectors, and we are collectors who deal with collectors and like the collecting market. We like to sell really to collectors if we can instead of investors, but it's okay. <laughs> the high bid gets the bid, and we're usually in the $200,000 area of what the auction gets gross-wise, as far as its total. So tell me, um, I know the, the prize for so many titles is uh, Stone Litho posters. Tell me what, what that refers to. Stone Lithos, uh, they stopped doing them in the uh, late 40s in the United States, whereas they kept on in Europe for another 10 years. And uh, it's, it's just, the poster is really, truly much more beautiful um, uh, and uh, rather than just the offset printing. But what's interesting about Cleveland, which is where I'm from, east side of Cleveland, is that there were more lithography companies in Cleveland, Ohio, in the United States in the 20s and 30s than anywhere else in the United States. It was the home of movie poster creativity, artwork, and printing in the 20s and 30s. There were six different lithography companies in Cleveland. Hmm. That's an information that most people don't know. Don't know, yeah. How did it happen to end up in Cleveland? You know? Morgan Lithograph was, was, was somewhere like Cincinnati, and, and one of the Morgan family married a girl up in Cleveland, I think, <laughs> and they decided to move the company up here, and they sort of like started it, and then all of a sudden ABC and Continental and Otis and the others, you know, started coming in, and there they were, you know, so... Cleveland has really got a real history as far as movie posters are concerned. The auction takes place, I mean, it's it's physical. I just saw Larry scribbling things down on a sheet of paper, but it also happens online at the same time. It's it's like a Sotheby's or Christie's auction. It's, it's a live auction. People bid by fax, mail. We have phone bidding. We have absentee bidding. I've taken several absentee bids already this morning. We have phone bidders set up. On Saturday, we'll have a couple of phones going. Um, it's the same as if you were bidding at Sotheby's, Christie's, or Heritage. It's a full-blown online auction. Okay. Um, and what percentage do you think of people bid here versus online? Is it mostly online now? Well, like any auction, we start out with a, a certain number of people. We've had as many as 75 in the room, but chances are we'll have about 40 to begin with, and by the end of the auction, we're probably down to about six or seven. <laughs> but that's normal for any auction. I one time called up to Heritage, and I was on the phone being a phone bidder, and I said, how many people are in the room? And they said, mm, nine. <laughs> you know, so it's not like you know that's a normal thing. A lot of it's Internet bidding now, of course. Yeah. I like to see the material. I like to be there. I like to be part of the action. You know, and, and auctions are fun, at least they are for me. I'm bidding in probably three auctions a week myself. One attendee has been to all 50 Cine events. His name is Phil Capasso. I've been a collector since 1967, actually before, but my first convention was in Chicago, near O'Hare Airport in 1967 at a motel where the Cinecon 3 was held. Colleen Moore was the, the star. She was from Chicago. She was, at, I believe, living with uh, King Vidor. I believe is what was occurring at the time. And she was very sweet to us. What do you collect? Well, I'm an opera buff, so I, I, I love to collect opera. I do have a number of complete operas on film. And uh, I always am looking for some, although I have most of the ones that I really want. Only looking for one right now called Otello which was 1985 with Placido Domingo, whom, I, whom I've met. I used to go to the Met all the time with my first wife, who, who died in 84. And that's, I, missed, I missed the cinephile, Cinecon in 84 because my wife was dying of cancer. And that's basically it. I, I, I collect just, I have all, lots of music. I'm a singer, so I did sing for 45 years. Sang at weddings and uh, political things. Uh, Star Spangled Banner. Sang for two presidents. And, and really interesting uh, life. So you collect 16 millimeter? Only 16 millimeter, right. 
I've, I've stuck with it from the beginning to the end. I did have an 8mm project. I still do have, but I don't have anything, any film at all, but it's primarily 16. So besides opera, what did you tend to have? Well, I've got all the big, all the big musicals. The, you name them, uh, Oklahoma, South Pacific, you, you name it. Sing it, singing in the rain, on the town, bandwagon, and so on. I've got most of those on on 16, and I'm also a Mario Lanza collector. And my name being Capasso, they later on called me Caruso, because I was opposite tenor. And uh, I used to sing along with Mario Lanza, the Be My Love, and so I used to sing all that stuff. And the only problem is all my friends don't like him, so I have my films and I can't run them. <laughs> it's terrible. Although I do like silent film, I've, I've enjoyed... My wife doesn't like silent film. None of my friends like silent film, although I do. I'm, what am I going to do? So this is where you come to I see I come to see, right. Who appreciate, yes, exactly. So how has 16mm collecting changed since you first started coming to these conventions? Well, there are fewer collectors, I'm afraid. The ones I've known are older and have retired and uh, have disposed of their collections, either donated or sold off their collectors' collections. I'm 82, going to be 82 in a couple of weeks, and so I, I'm contemplating something like that because I, I hate for them to be sold for a, a dollar and a half a reel, you know, that kind of thing. Film collecting 16 millimeter has, has de decreased a number of degrees, primarily because of what the DVR, the DVDs, and all that stuff, and, and the Blu-rays, and you name it. I don't even know what they are, <laughs> but the, the, yeah, that because I, I had a friend say, "Well, I've got I've got Gone with the Wind." I said, "Oh, you do? That's a big five reel uh, film." And, no, I've got a I've got a little DVD. <laughs> Gee. Well, a, a film collector has to work at it, and I'm getting to the point where I've got to be careful. It's, they're, they're heavy, the films. But I'm fortunately in pretty good shape, so I can handle those things. I don't think there's anything particular. I just come and watch all the films. I just enjoy Phil Carley's playing, which he adds tremendously to the silent film. And the, uh, I love the, the, the serial, which I'm enjoying. I mean, I just enjoy film, period, that's all. And I enjoy being with the other friends I've known for 50 years. Attendees at Cinevent definitely lean toward a certain age. And the topic of how to get younger people interested in old movies comes up a lot. Samantha Glasser, who's known on Nitrateville as Malihandra, started going as a teenager. Now she's on the staff helping it run smoothly, a particular accomplishment for someone who is eight months pregnant with her second child. My first year was 2007. I was 19 years old. I went by myself. <laughs> my sister, they have a thing if you're under 18, you can get in for free with a paying adult. And she was 17, so I bribed her to come with me <laughs> so that I wasn't by myself completely. Um, she has not come since. She just really doesn't have the interest, but... I loved it. I got hooked. It was great to be around people that actually knew about these movie stars well and I could learn from and just like indulge in all of it. So you were already hooked on old movies? Yeah. So how'd that happen? Um, the first time I really started watching old movies, like for, like I focused on that, was um, probably like 14, 15 years old. I had always kind of watched Little Rascals, Three Stooges, stuff like that with my dad. And then um, just as a teenager, got more of an interest in like the backgrounds of the actors and what other films they might have been in. So I started seeking out all that stuff from the library and just soaking up as much as I possibly could. So who are your favorites then? Now or then? Or back then. Back then, anything Little Rascals I would watch. So like... Dickie Moore made a lot of movies outside of the series, so I watched a lot of stuff. Um, Sergeant York made me interested in Gary Cooper, and uh, he made a movie called The Bride Wore Red, which I had never seen for a long, long time, but with Joan Crawford, so I sought out some of her movies. Love her. Um, Blonde Venus with Marlena Dietrich. Love Marlena Dietrich. 
took German in college because of Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> um, just, yeah, the, more female stars than male stars. That's kind of changed over the years, but like in the beginning, it's yeah. kind of, I identified better with it. So you came every year to Cinevent? Mm-hmm. The only year I missed was 2016 because I had a baby. Okay, which <laughs> you're in the process of having another one. Yes. But you're still here with a staff badge yes. doing doing stuff. So t- yeah, when did you get involved with the festival? I was writing articles about Cinevent for um, The Lantern, which is the OSU newspaper, when I was in college. So that's how I met, like, Steve Haynes and um, got involved that way. And so I wrote a few things for the program over the years, here and there, but never officially, like, a staff member until probably last year. I did some publicity kind of things, passing out flyers, stuff like that. Um, and wrote for the program. And then this year they gave me a bigger role, so I was involved with helping pick which films were shown, um, more publicity kind of things, wrote for the program, uh, lots of editing for the commemorative book that we did this year for the 50th. Um, and then next year I'm going to take on even a bigger role with the dealer's room. So. Oh, nice. Uh, so what films did you want to get seen this year in particular? This year, one of them did not get shown. <laughs> the print turned out to be not so good, but I really wanted to screen And the Angels Sing, which is a Dorothy Lamore, Betty Hutton, Eddie Bracken musical. Um, but I did get the Our Gang silent films, which is what brought me to this in the first place. Right, so it was yeah, kind of an yeah. homage to that. <laughs> um, and plus having Leonard Malton here was really cool to, you know, the Little Rascals. He did those introductions on those Cabin Fever right. tapes, so... The Eyes of Julia Deep was a suggestion that I made because we try to show something that's 100 years old every year now okay. that we're kind of getting into that, sure. that we can. Um, so I've never seen the film, but I've always wanted to see a Mary's Miles mentor just because of the scandal and everything. It's kind sure. of fun to get to see. All right. Well, how do you, you know, as a young person, speaking for the youth of today, <laughs> now, as, as a younger person getting into films at a festival, obviously, is average age is is quite a ways up there do you know people who anybody else who cares about this stuff do you know how to have you gotten any friends into it how do how do you keep this alive i try really hard i think honestly the most important factor is whether you are exposed to it as at a young age because trying to get an adult to watch a black and white movie or a silent movie for the first time i think you're kind of over those emotional really like highly charged emotional parts of your life that like even if you enjoy it you're not going to get so attached to it necessarily if you're an adult versus if you're young it's like you know you latch on to things a little bit more strongly um so most people that i know that are young and interested were exposed as a child so i think that's probably one of the most important factors which isn't i mean you can't go back in time and make a bunch of people (laughs) but um i did it was really weird i was working in retail my sister was dating a guy that i worked with and uh he showed interest in coming to cinevent his name was tim tally and uh i you know said yeah I'll, I'll bring you like come on a Saturday or whatever we'll go I did not expect him to enjoy it I expected to kind of like be dragged down by it he was so enthusiastic about it he loved it he met so many people here that he made friends with and still keeps in contact with he's in Thailand doing missionary work yeah. now so he doesn't still attend but like he started coming for several years brought his mom one year so it's just some people kind of have that yeah. implanted in them and some people don't <laughs> If you're talking about young people who got interested in old movies, you can't do much better than Leonard Malton, author of a best-selling movie guide for almost 50 years, and long-running TV commentator on classic film on Entertainment Tonight. He started writing about film as a young teen, and soon became both editor and publisher of a zine called Film Fan Monthly. His new book collects pieces from a lifetime of loving classic film. Well, my new book is called Hooked on Hollywood, and it's uh, a collection of articles and interviews going back to the days when I was a teenager publishing my own fanzine called Film Fan Monthly. 
And a lot of these interviews have never been reprinted or anthologized. At age 16, I got to interview Anita Luce, the woman who wrote Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, uh, and Burgess Meredith just a short time after that. Uh, so it's, it's some, I reread all of these to make sure they held up. And I chose the ones I liked best. And, and then I published another later generation fanzine, more of a newsletter called Leonard Maltin's Movie Crazy. And I've included material from that, which are not just interviews and interesting interviews, I think, but articles I wrote on various research subjects, like for instance, the music of Casablanca. Everyone knows as time goes by, but there's a lot of other music in that film. How did these different songs wind up there? Who made those decisions? I went into the Warner Brothers archive and found the answers. Yeah, no, I thought that was that was really interesting that Casablanca is sort of scored like a Warner Brothers cartoon. It's just one song after yes, another. Yes, yes. It's like a bed of music through the whole film. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, I was looking at some film fan monthlies in one of the collector rooms here, and in some ways, you know, that's that's a long lost age of mimeographed uh, publications yeah, yeah. and things like that. And yet at the same time, I mean, it's kind of what everybody's doing now. It's, you know, fans it's write Only online. the medium has changed. Right. Yes. And the medium is so easily accessible to anyone. Uh, that's a big difference, too. And uh, you know, there's no reason for anyone not to do it now. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, putting out a mimeographed magazine or a zine or what, you know, whatever you want to call it at a particular time, that was real work back then. And well, believe me, as someone who licked stamps, stuffed envelopes, hand-wrote addresses on those envelopes, and hauled the boxes to the post office, I can tell you <laughs> that there was a lot more physical labor involved than there is uh, today on the Internet. Well, and the other thing that struck me, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, it's just the nature of blogging. It's kind of all about you. You know, what did, what did I eat for lunch today? Yeah, yeah. What did I think of the new Star Wars? And what I like about this, and it's reflected so much in the in the book, is you know, sixteen year old kid interviewing Henry Wilcoxon. Yeah. You know, and part of it is that I don't know if it was instinct or luck, but that idea of shooting for the star who hasn't been pestered. Yeah, and I found that those people often had the most interesting stories. Now, I don't say that I could compare them to what Clark Gable might have told me, or or Greer Garson or Humphrey Bogart, but. Uh, I, I, ha I developed a theory that the supporting players and the uh, character actors had more of a perspective, let's say. The spotlight wasn't shining in their eyes. They were just off to the side, and both literally and figuratively. And so I think that gave them a, 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 different, a different view of what was going on. Yeah. Um, so for... For young people today, I mean, how do you see? You, you have a daughter who's into these movies. My sons are pretty much into them with some some level of indulgence toward dad. Yeah. Uh, how do you see getting young people into this sort of thing? Today? Oh, well, you got to start them young. you got to start them before they have a, a, a wise guy mouth. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to watch that. you got to get, get them earlier than that. Uh, Jesse... Uh, had no interest in television when she was like two. Those days soon came to an end. <laughs> but around three she started paying a little attention and at three and a half uh, they released the first laser disc copy of my wife's all-time favorite movie Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. <laughs> I brought it home and being a laser disc uh, just like a DVD I was able to go right to the barn racing uh, scene, the great production number and she, her eyes lit up. She was fascinated by it. I, and she said at the end of it, again. Yeah. <laughs> okay, click back, watch it again. She must have seen it five times in a row. This is our indulgence, of course, but right. we, she must have seen it five times in a row. And then every day we had to show it to her. And I said, you want to start from the beginning of the movie? No. No, she didn't want to start from the beginning of the movie. She just liked this number a lot. Uh, and there's a lot to like about it. But one day, I didn't stop at the end of the number. I let it run. I let the movie run a little bit. And slowly, she started getting curious about who were these characters and what was their relationship. And so eventually, 
over weeks, <laughs> <laughs> we weaned her onto the movie as a whole. And uh, so I think it's safe to say she's, she's almost 32 now. And she's her own person. She has her own tastes, her own likes. You know, and that's as it should be. But her favorite movie remains Seven Brides for yeah. Seven Brothers. Yeah, I have a class of just what I consider perfect movies. There's just no, there's no point in criticizing anything about them. Yeah. What can you say against The Adventures of Robin Hood or Miracle on 34th Street? Exactly. That would mean, you know, how could you hurt it? Right, you know, right. So. Um, well, and, you know, similar experience with me. I mean, my kids watched, I think it was The Kid Brother, and they're probably like... One was seven and four, or something like that, and they're just like jumping up and down on the couch, screaming as it works toward its climax. And it's like, what can compare to that? Nothing. Harold Lloyd movies are audience proof. Yeah, I reached that conclusion many years ago. They play to anybody and everybody, and the ideal that he put the 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 goal of perfection, which is what he was after, has held up all these decades. They're still great audience movies. Uh, when he does that final run down the field in The Freshman, uh, I've been in audiences where kids are cheering out loud. Right. <laughs> it, it's wonderful to see. So how do you feel, I mean, do you accept that classic film now reaches well into your own life now? It's hard to, it's hard to accept that fully. Yeah. Uh, that I mean, Ferris Bueller is an old movie. Yeah, exactly, and exactly. Now, no, a lot of '80s movies uh, are uh, much loved. The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller, all the John Hughes movies. Uh, you know, well, I, I have a new phrase I use for those: modern classics. Yeah. And uh, to the generation that grew up with them, and, and let's face it, we're all attached to things we had discovered when we were young. Yeah. So that's not not a new phenomenon. Uh, it's just that the names change and the, right, right. <laughs> and the, the years in the parentheses change. So I, I have no, no, no beef about that. Uh, all I say to people, including my students, where I teach at USC, and uh, all I say is just be open. That's all I'm saying. Just be open to other things and to trying new things and to sampling different kinds of movies. How do you know if you, you're going to like it if you don't try it? Right. Yeah. So I've had, I've had my class in frac we is a contemporary film class, not a history class, and uh, a lot of them are not film majors. It's about three hundred students in the class it's in a big auditorium, and some of them would rather have root canal than read subtitles. <laughs> and what I've found is if the movie's good enough, they'll read the subtitles. Yeah, if it grabs them. If it gets them, then they'll, they'll, they'll find themselves, to their own surprise, just absorbing the subtitles. No one loves reading subtitles, yeah. but uh, if the movie's good enough, you'll do it. My older son, I put on Wings of Desire, and he was skeptical for about 15 minutes, and then it's like the bulbs went on. Well, that's a magical film. Yeah, yeah, and it was for him, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So is there anything here that you've never seen that you're excited to see this weekend? Well, I've already, I'm doing uh, some book signings and things, so some of my time has been scheduled for me, and I haven't seen some of the things I might have liked to, I was going to try to catch the Mary Miles Mitter silent this morning. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't get to see it. But, uh, you know, I'll sit through almost (laughs) Right, right. I'll give anything. I actually am looking forward to that John Wayne B movie they're showing tonight. Same here, yeah, I know Uh, nothing about it. Well, he made about a half dozen films for Universal in the mid-30s. And they are perhaps his least known and least circulated films. So there's a reason we're both interested. Yeah. It's, which is so odd to me. How do you not make money off John Wayne movies if you have them? But. Well, if you're a company that doesn't exploit its own film library as fully as you should, not naming names like <laughs> Universal, then that can happen. The women was sobbing, 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 fit to be tied. Every muscle was throbbing, throbbing from that riotous ride. Seems they cried and kissed and kissed and cried all over that Roman countryside. So don't forget that when you're taking a bride. Leonard Malton's Hooked on Hollywood, Discoveries from a Lifetime of Film Fandom, will be published by Goodnight Books on July 2nd.
A link for pre-ordering it will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. The unsung heroes of any film festival are the people who keep it running through the gate. One lunch break, I talked to Bob Hodge, one of Cinevent's three projectionists. I got started doing uh, in the motion picture business, if you want to call it that, at the age of 13 when I learned to run 35 millimeter at the uh, Riviera Theater in Syracuse, New York. And I've been involved with it, involved in motion picture projection, well, pretty much, not full time. Uh, because the days of anyone making any money, making a living, put it that way, yeah. in projection is uh, pretty much over with. But uh, I was one of the projectionists at Cinefest in Syracuse for many years, and I also did maintenance on that equipment for many years. Well, Steve Haynes, of course, uh, was a regular attendee at uh, Cinefest. And uh, he one day he just came up and asked me if I'd be interested in giving him a hand here. And I said, yes, and here I am. I'm sure a big issue is the different condition of so many of the prints. Oh. Uh. <laughs> I could write a book. <laughs> uh, one of the films we ran yesterday was so badly warped that uh, wouldn't stay, in, wouldn't stay in the gate, wouldn't stay in the machine. It, it would try and walk itself right out of the gate. It was so badly warped. Yeah, it sounded like, um, I guess it was coming off the sound head. Actually, the sound head was reading the frame line. Yeah. <laughs> because it would not, the guides would not retain it properly. It was so warped. Uh, some, some uh, well, I had some uh, 16 in Syracuse for Cinefest that, uh, was so badly, had gone, a, a, well, I'm not sure I'd, I'd say a good portion of it, but a fair amount of the uh, the first five minutes was unprojectable because it was so warped and so shrunk and so vinegar. Yeah. But when you come to those situations, about all you can do is just fall back. And in my case, I just um, advanced through the film by hand until I found a section that I thought might run, and I ran that. Uh, there was a time when you could order replacement footage for a lot of 16 millimeter, well, as well as 35. Um, if the the lending libraries maintained their prints well, if a section got too splicey, you could order replacement for replacement footage and splice it in. But over time, obviously, that became less and less a uh, an option. So, in some cases, what most what a lot of collectors will do is amass two or three prints and make a best surviving version. We had a film of um, having to do with horse racing a few years ago at the old hotel, and that was it's it's called a composite print. That was a composite print. Sections of it were vinegar, sections of it weren't, but it ran. I'm not sure it would now, but it ran then. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we, a lot of these, their their prints will never exist again. Their sh number of showings is is very few, if any more. That's right. So, um, it's and, all the race against time. And really, what you have to do, and mo what most collectors, well, actually, what most collectors can't afford to do, is um, to retain. The integrity a lot of, of a lot of these films they really need to be frozen they're basically they're they're uh, well I'll give you the, the codoscope version they're sealed in a they're sealed in a heavy gauge plastic bag the air is all pumped out of it and it's frozen uh, that will slow down vinegar syndrome that will slow down or well, if it's if it hasn't started that may that may stop it because cold slows down chemical reactions of which vinegar syndrome is uh, is a uh, symptom. But most collectors can't afford the freezers and the space and the equipment that you need to to pump down the, the bags and uh, when it comes time to project it the film has to come out of the freezer for several days in advance and, and allowed to, uh, to thaw the humidity, if there is any in the bag, has to be allowed to dissipate, and then you can project it.
had, we were so funny you could hear the laughter across the street. Really? What was playing across the street? <laughs> oh, a doctor, eh? Say, Doc, it hurts when I go like this. So don't go like this. We happen to be sensational. Did you see our last show? I sure hope so. They're the greatest comedy duo you've never heard of, unless you're a real dope. Biffle and Schuster were created by L.A. comedy players Will Ryan and Nick Santamaria, and pushed retroactively into the ranks of classic comedy duos in a series of 30s-style comedy shorts by Michael Schlesinger, who as a specially film distribution executive brought you Orson Welles' It's All True and Godzilla 2000, which is not actually by Orson Welles. Now the shorts are on DVD from Kino Lorber, with lots of extras, though not the Cecil B. DeMille epic kind, the DVD supplement guy. And one of the films, The Biffle Murder Case, made its festival debut at Cinevent. And I spoke with Schlesinger about his effort to sell audiences Biffle and Schuster's old shorts. Well, I was just going to talk about your DVD, but you have a complete product line. <laughs> so tell me about that. Well, I, I don't know that we're at that point yet, but um, yes, um, although I don't have that much to do with the others, uh, Will and Nick wrote a book called Biffle and Schuster's Pocket Guide to Personal Etiquette, uh, which is a small volume full of humorous uh, ways to behave, and I wrote a short introduction to it. And we also uh, have done... And again, we, I say that because I'm only tangentially involved. A Bifflin Schuster comic book uh, done by the well-known artist Mark, uh, Mike Kazala uh, and written by Will. And it's drawn in the style of a late 50s, early 60s Bob Hope or Jerry Lewis comic book. I was just going to say, book. can it live up to the high comic book standards yeah, of the Jerry Lewis and it's Bob It's very Hope well comics. done. So uh, we ran off a few copies. And I'm selling a few of them here. And then I think there's a GoFundMe campaign right now to pay for a full run. And Will and Mike are uh, apparently already working on the second issue. Okay. And then Greg Hilbrick is writing an honest-to-God biography of Biffle and Schuster. <laughs> Uh, and we're, of course, feeding him information so we can try and keep the continuity straight. But, you know, there's so many iterations of, of the characters already, you know, that uh, who knows? I mean, I'd like to think that the ones uh, that we've done for the films are the definitive ones, but there are other ones, too. So, uh, And even when Will and Nick do uh, live performances, they're really more music than, than comedy. They will get up there and they'll sing songs, some of them humorous, and they'll do a few sketches. But, uh, again, that's, you know not really what they're doing in the films yeah well so let's uh but the main the main product from the point of view of film fans is that they are now out on dvd the yes Adventures of hooray Chester. finally <laughs> yes so tell me about that okay uh well kino lorber is putting them out uh i've i've known the, those folks for a long time i've done some commentaries for them and you know I, as i said it it just seemed like who better to distribute uh, an old movie that looks like a new movie than a company that distributes old movies and new movies? Right. And uh, and actually, they were very generous. Uh, they gave uh, us a pretty free hand in producing the disc. Uh, our only limitations were trying to squeeze in as much as we could without you know lowering the bit rates. So a lot of stuff had to get dropped. But you know that's that's the way of the world. So it has what uh, six shorts. There, there are five, uh, well, six shorts. There's a, there's a Vitaphone one-reeler. Okay. So I don't know if you want to count that as the sixth or not. It could okay. be, but yeah. And then there's, there's, we have commentaries on the five major shorts, Will, Nick, and I. And then we have like about an hour of bloopers and outtakes. There's deleted scenes. There are alternate takes, uh, extended takes of musical numbers. There's footage that we shot for trailers that we never put together. Um, just all kinds of stuff. So And, and you know, some of the stuff that was in the feature version that was briefly released. Uh, you know, there's a, a Spanish outtake from Imitation of Wife. There's a, their deleted cameo from It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And then an interview they did at the time of Mad, Mad, Mad World in their costumes and their old age makeup that, uh, you know, which is very, which they had lived on the spot. We just roll the cameras and let them yammer for 10 minutes <laughs> like the Sunshine Boys. Right. Uh, is there any truth to the rumor that they were going to be in the 3D and Blazing Stewardesses, but <laughs> Harry Ritz beat them out? I think they had passed away by then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, of course, originally it was the Stooges, you know, and then it yeah. was, and then Larry got sick and that was the end of it. Okay. So, um, so the, I take it from the way you're describing. I didn't know this uh, that they really developed the characters originally for. They created stage, the characters, or? but it was very nebulous. Uh, I don't even think Biffle had a first name. <laughs> Uh, and you know, and 
they, they did some ad hoc things, you know, live performances. And then Nick and another guy whose name I think is Paul Lewis did uh, on their own some flash animations, which are on YouTube. But again, the characters are just kind of nebulous blobs. The only way you can tell them apart is that one of them has a pair of glasses. Yeah. So when I decided we we're going to do a film, I really felt that I had to, you know, build the characters almost from scratch, you know, giving them real personalities, real backgrounds, running gags, you know, and so we could, you know, so at least they're clearly defined characters. And all the shorts are different from each other because I didn't want to sink into that idea of, of repetition. You're watching the same thing over and over again, though there are some running gags that repeat from one to another. But also their characterizations change from one short to another, depending on the situation. So, like in the Biffle murder case, which was shown here today, um, they're really Abbott and Costello, and, you know, Schuster slaps Biffle a lot or stomps on his foot or hits him with his hat, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas an imitation of Wife, which is more of a Hal Roach-type domestic situation comedy, uh, there's none of that, because the two of them are kind of working together, uh, you know, to solve a problem. Yeah, I was trying so. to think who who I felt the models were. And for this one, yeah, I would say Abbott and Curly is sort of the duo. But Perhaps. Well, Abbott slapped Costello quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but uh, they are kind of an amalgam of all the great comedy teams. And it's just sort of like uh, there are all these personalities inside and which one comes to the fore depends on the scenario they're in. Well, like in Schmoboat, for example, where they're playing themselves, uh, they're, they're really hoping Crosby. Uh, it's funny because last year I did... Um, a commentary uh, with my friend Mark Evanier on Road to Bali, and watching the film, I said, I didn't realize how much Hope and Crosby are like Bivol and Schuster. Yeah. Well, it should be the other way around, you know. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I said, well, yeah, boy, I really nailed this pretty good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that I thought was interesting was, you know, a fair amount of meta-comedy uh, about comedy mm-hmm. that to some degree is in comedy shorts but I think even more is in Warner Brothers cartoons sure. I felt a, a definite sort of Tashlin Avery in the air of this one well I try to you know you have to keep the things fast moving because today's audiences you know are not going to you know you try and make a kid watch a Laurel and Hardy movie today and they're just going to sit there and go god this is so slow when's something <laughs> going to happen you know, so uh, so, but we, you know, back then, if you look at a, at a Stooge short, for example, from the '30s and '40s, those things move pretty quickly too. So yeah, and um, uh, you know, and I, I love using old jokes, reusing old jokes, which is what they did at the right. time. But it's also fun to kind of you know throw the audience a curveball, you know, and lead them into one direction, and then you know suddenly make a shift into left field. For example, in imitation of wife. Uh, when they're making dinner, Schuster says to Biffle, serve the salad undressed. And then everybody thinks, oh, we're going to do right. the gag from Soup to Nuts, <laughs> Laurel and Hardy short, where he's going to come out on, you know, you know, in his underwear. And then, and then no, we foil them, and he, he says, put the dressing in the dressing dish. You know, it's like, oh, okay. You know, so, you know, we've led him down the garden path and then, you know, slapped him. Yeah. Well, and I thought it was funny, too. I mean, it begins basically... Or almost begins close yeah. to the beginning, uh, as a reference to the music box, you know, because they show up with a big yes. package. Right. We never even saw them come up the the many stairs that must no, exist. No, we didn't. Well, the, the the crate is the MacGuffin. It's the yeah. excuse to get them into the house. And people say, "What's in the crate?" I said, "I don't know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Once they're in the house, the crate doesn't matter anymore." Yeah. Same thing that's in the briefcase and kiss me deadly. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how? How have people reacted to this? Well, uh, well, again, you know, it's it's been a mostly preaching to the choir situation, sure. but uh, everyone who's seen it so far loved it. As we speak, there are six reviews on Amazon, and they're all five star, which is remarkable. Yeah. And my Facebook page is uh, and is filled with people just raving about it. Uh, you know, Patty Tobias, who runs the damn finos, the Buster Keaton Society, literally said, "Laughed so hard I couldn't breathe." Yeah, that's pretty. And you know, we've gotten remarkable compliments from you know people in the industry, you know, writers and directors, and and you know who are friends of mine. But nonetheless, have have said. In fact, my friend Joe Dante actually gave us a quote for the back cover of the DVD, which was you know very special. Yeah. And, um. You know, the one thing I was thinking about is going from watching that to watching actual movies is the thing that's so hard to get, I'm sure in digital especially, is that, you know, just how focus was back then. I mean, mm-hmm. it was built around an entirely different 
way that optics worked with film back then and sure. everything else. Uh, well, I, I have an authenticity fetish, as yeah. I like to say. I, I want these things to be as realistic to the period as... You know, I don't want this to be like X-Men First Class, which supposedly takes place in 1962, and there's nothing in it that even remotely resembles 1962. Yeah. And uh, well, I say, you know, I imagine they thought, oh, well, then it just turns into Austin Powers if, right. we, if we name check the actual time. Period. They didn't even do that. There, there was, a, I think, there's a, a map on the wall, and it says Russia. No, in 1962, it would have either would said, have said USSR. USSR or Soviet Union. It would not have said Russia. You know, yeah. Yeah. so there's, there's not even that attention to detail. Nobody smokes. Come on, you're gonna tell me nobody in 1962 was smoking, please? Right. So not even a goddamn Nazi smoke. You know. <laughs> The the six million Jews. This is you're okay with lighting up a lucky. This is the problem. <laughs> right. Well, kids will yeah. be influenced. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, and um, so yeah, and and I was very fortunate uh, because I have a wonderful crew of actual professional people, and many of them are in their sixties, and they actually can't work anymore because they're in their sixties. You know, and and uh, so I was the happy beneficiary of all their wisdom and experience, and they loved the project because they knew it was something different and special. Uh, my production designer is a guy named Scott Cobb, who is a very busy and talented uh, guy working mostly in television, and um, and we got him because um, he had always wanted to do something in period, and uh, and we gave him the chance to do something in period, and and he. He relished the challenge, and because we did this fairly, fairly quickly, he was able to get get in and get out. You know, time to go back to the next season of I think it was Sunny in Philadelphia. He was working on at the time. So, um, and Doug Knapp, my DP, goes back over forty years. He shot the original Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Oh wow! And my editor Bill Bryn Russell, who's a one-man post-production house, and he's responsible for the look of the films in many respects. I mean, obviously Doug lights the sets. But you know, you know, the adding grain and you know, you know, putting some noise on the soundtrack, and we really played around with a lot of stuff. We, the Vitaphone short is really degraded in terms of picture and sound, and uh, I, I said, put in a slug somewhere. And <laughs> not only did he put in a slug, but then he put in a fake bad splice when the picture comes back. <laughs> uh, we did um, for an interview they did uh, for the man during the time of the Mad Mad World cameo. Um, we pretended that it was shot by a local TV station and then never edited or aired because they, their scene was cut for the movie. And so we, quote unquote, found it, you know, and uh, so I had Bill fade it to magenta, uh -huh. like it had been sitting in a vault for 55 years and, you know, would flash it along the edge and, you know, put some dirt on it, you know, make it look like a faded 16 millimeter print. And I, it really looks authentic. Yeah. And I, I love, and of course, the Mad Mad World outtake itself is matted the two seven six to one Ultra Panavision, right? You know, and it's and it has stereo on it, you know, as the cars whoosh by, <laughs> and um, and I love playing, and we even have a Hanschlegel uh, effect in one. Um, there's a scene in Imitation of Wife where um, Biffle reaches into the oven to take out the, the chicken. And he doesn't use oven mitts or anything, yeah. and so we, you know, hear this scream, and he comes and he holds up his hands, and what we had put tight black gloves on his hands to make it look like they were charred to a crisp, and they were going to CGI some smoke coming off of them, and we were looking at a rough cut, and Stan Taffel said, you know, it'd be fun if if they were red, his hands glowing red. I said, oh, like a legal and he said, yes. And thank God for computers, Bill was able to do that in about 20 minutes. Right, yeah. And yeah. not only is it a great laugh, but it's a big surprise because people don't expect that sudden flash of color in a black and white movie, especially a cheap one. Yeah. So, and, you know, that amused me no end, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, so we worked very hard to make them look and sound real. And like I say, they, we, we have great people. I mean, my sound guy, you know, is like a, has two Emmys and six nominations, you know, and it's... So it's like these are really great people. A lot of Larry Blumeyer's people, you know, from the Lost Scale, and both, you know, sure. behind the scenes and also the actors. I tried to reuse as many of those guys as I could. I see you mentioned today yeah. that in Biffle Murder Case, yeah. you reused props from from yes. old things. I didn't recognize anything. But well, uh, let's, you know, let's give away a few of those. Well, you know, I mean, there's certain things. Uh, there's often a picture of me in in period okay. dress on the, on the set. Um, the, the Maltese Falcon is visible in a okay. few shots. There's a photograph of S.S. Van Dyne, you know, on, on one table. But there are, you know, the paintings, for example, the painting of uh, a wonderful artist named Courtney Skinner. Um, 
did a series of paintings for Larry, uh, Larry's Dark and Stormy Night, which were the members of the Cavender family. They were all fairly grotesque-looking people. And you really only saw them momentarily. And, and it, it seemed, you know, we still had a bunch of them left. And I said, let's reuse them. We've got them. They're paid for. Why not? You know, they're the sort of thing. And so the, when we did It's a Frame-Up, the first one, which takes place in Art Gallery, I took the one of Sinus Cavender, which was the main painting, which is actually a self-caricature of Courtney, and put it, hung it in the gallery. And then, you know, sort of a good luck charm. And then it sort of became like, okay, a trademark. And so we used the painting in every subsequent short uh-huh. at one place or another. And, um, and then a few of the other paintings. And then for Bride of Finkelstein, one, we, two of the paintings had the eyes cut out so, you know, someone could look out from behind uh-huh. it. And, um, and we only had one left, but so we used that as well. So we'd use that gag of someone looking, you know, with the eyes cut out. Because you're going to do a horror movie spoof, you have to do that. Yeah. Well, and that kind of continuity from one short to the next is yeah. such a, you know, a joke that's so perfect for this yeah. kind of festival because you yeah. wind up seeing movies where that truly happens. Right. Of course, that's the way it was done. You'd see the same props over and over and over again. I mean, how many biograph shorts did Griffith make where you would see like the silhouette pictures of Washington and Lincoln hanging on yeah. the wall? They're like <laughs> constantly. And you know, and yeah, there's an urn that we uh, we bought for um, for frame up that turns up in a couple of other places. You know, just all kinds of things. It says, well, we've got it. Let's use it again. Why not? Yeah. You know, yeah. the jokes are recycled. Why not the props? Right. <laughs> all right. Anything else you want to say about it? Get people out there to uh, gosh to uh, enter the uh, the world, the Biffle and Schuster creative universe. Um, all I can say is, if you love to laugh, real laugh, real comedy, not this smug crap that you get today or you know this where everything is farting and vomiting guys I mean real honest jokes and slapstick and you know but done you know it's silly and it's goofy but you know if I can pat myself back there is sort of a layer of intelligence there a layer of wit that we put in you know to see if people get there are a lot of jokes in there that you know some people that it just flies by them because they're not quite sure you know they're not putting the pieces together and you know the scripts are structured so um so, for example, in Biffle murder case, um, the, the, pers- the, the murder victim is someone who is about to inherit uh, a big sum of money. And right before the killer delivers this really awful pun, Schuster says, again, he was about to inherit $3 million and you killed him. Because the audience needed that refresher to be set up for the horrible pun that comes. And then when the horrible pun comes... We top that by having Biffle, who usually makes the bad puns, walk right up to the camera, look into the lens, and say, he said it, folks. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so you carefully structure the joke until you get a maximum payoff. Yeah. But if you really like to laugh, I mean, just good old-fashioned helpless laughter, you would love this disc, and you can watch it over and over again. Like I said, there's hours of extras. We did commentaries in the five shorts. You can watch with the whole family, because these are supposedly made in the 30s, so they're all clean. Uh... <laughs> And uh, I think uh, I think it, and because they're short, so you don't have you can only watch one at a time. You can watch yeah. all. You know, you can anytime you just feel like I got 20 minutes to kill and I feel crappy. I think I'll throw one of these on and it'll pick me up. So there isn't a discernible difference between pre-code and post-code. Difficult well, none of the start. ones we've done yet uh, are pre-code. I mean, we do. Well, the Vitaphone. Would be yeah, good. but that's that's just their their vaudeville act, oh, okay. you know. So it's. Uh, uh, which, by the way, I didn't write. I just, I just rolled the camera and let them, you know, do their thing. Okay. Uh, so, so I don't think. No, so this, much like real Vitaphone. Yeah, you. exactly. Well, it was, it was definitely structured that way. No, but the the, um, the 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 timeline we established was that the first season was thirty three to thirty four. So that was pre code, and so we do have. And the four, you know, that that we hopefully will someday do. There, there is room for some, you know, some more spicy humor yeah as we say there's nothing surer the rich get rich and the poor get children in the meantime in between time ain't we got fun oh ain't we got coming soon check your local newspaper for show times yeah the misadventures of biffle and schuster is out now on dvd from kino lorber I'll have links for it and the other Biffle & Schuster items for your complete Biffle & Schuster collection in the show post at nitrateville.com. Could this day get any worse? The festival is over. 
six hours of open road awaits us going back to Chicago. And Joe Aransky, Jessica Rosner, and I are talking about what we saw. I liked quite a few films. Surprisingly, I was not expecting to like the serial. I really liked The Masked Marvel unbelievably. It's Republic. It has very little plot line, but it reminded me of my childhood in the 50s of being able to go to the community theater and see good knock'em, uh, rock'em action fights. And you could never tell who the Mass Marvel was anyway, so it could have been anybody. I, enjoy, I really did enjoy no production value, but most importantly, and while I watched it the first time, was to see Johnny Arthur and to hear him you know, as a Japanese counter-spy. And who's Johnny Arthur? Johnny Arthur was a great silent film star, most famous for making um, The Monster with Lon Chaney in 1925. Um, he's also known to a lot of people as Darla Hood's father in the R-Gang comedies throughout the 30s. He's tall, thin, small mustache with a whiny voice. And when his career ended in the during the Second World War, he became a cab driver and didn't complain. A very interesting person, but I really enjoyed how meticulous his performance was, trying to get mannerisms down, trying not to do a burlesque. So I was very, very pleased with this. Totally unexpected for me. If I was to go for the, what I thought was the best film, I would say that it was probably repeat performance. I like that a lot. Yeah. Repeat performance. Unfortunately, I remember seeing this in New York City in the, the 1960s, so I knew the, the plot line already. But I think for everyone else, this was a tremendous uh, discovery. Well, the, yeah, the notes were saying because it was a it was an Eagle Lion film, and I guess cheap to TV then that they would play it every New Year's, and it's like it's a serious noir. I mean, what a way yeah. to start off your New Year! You know, fate is coming for you no matter what. It's Christmas holiday for Christmas, so. But I feel obligated to say that my favorite silent, of which there were remarkably few, were the eyes of Julia Deep. I like that a lot, yeah. It, it was one of the last of the flying A films she made. Very Miles Minter. Which led her to be picked up by Paramount. And she is candy box beautiful. Not a great actress. If nothing else, just to get a film that even in 1918 would have four people arrested because they're uh, putting accusations against each other and to have a jailer be soft-talked into putting them into his parlor rather than into jail cells. <laughs> so and that alone was worth watching the whole motion picture. Well, yeah, it's like, a, I mean, it, it felt like screwball at that point. Yes. Every, you know, the, the scene where everybody in the cast gets arrested and has to explain the plot to a judge. What about the great line where they, they, they did want to get out and then he goes, they, he opens the window and they walk out and says, we could have done this 12 hours ago. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just had a sort of sweetly knowing humor to it that was very very likable. And I'd never seen, I don't know that I've seen Mary Miles Minter. I can't think of... Nurse Marjorie, perhaps? No, never seen that. And then there was something else that I was very... The Richard Talmage complete ripoff oh. of The Prisoner of Zenda. Which had nice settings. I'm sure they rented some nice existing sets or whatever. But happened so fast, you couldn't tell what was going on. Except, of course, you you know the Prisoner of Zenda. So you know what's going on. Well, except that it's it's the Prisoner of Zenda, but it's also the... the um, what was it? The Doug Fairbanks 1916. Uh, the Ameri um, Americana? His Majesty the American. His Majesty the American, yeah. But still... His action is wonderful. He's not up to playing a double role, the king and the American. I never knew which was which, yeah. Well, there, was, there didn't seem to be much difference except right. one yawned more than the other. And what it really reminded me of was like a Jackie Chan movie from the 80s in that there's like several good stunt sequences and everything between it is so flimsy. Yes. There's just, you know, you can bear. It's barely put together, except the stunts are impressive. And by the way, the other one that I was, you know, wasn't terrible, but was disappointing was Don't Change Your Husband. Really? No, I like that a lot. I thought that was kind of weak. What can I say? 
DeMille with Gloria Swanson. Yeah, I, but it was just a little too, you know. But it was part of that, that trio that he was doing, Don't Change Your Wife, Why Change Your Husband, you know, sort of the new uh, tintillating sexual films that were coming out where Gloria Swanson's dresses get more complicated, her hairdos are impossible to imagine how to make them, and yeah. basically you have more luxury items spread around the set than any department store and Tiffany's could include. And of course you have gratuitous historical flashbacks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I want to put in a good word for sort of the Columbus specialties, which are the animation program and the shorts program, which I really enjoy. Uh, I, I, I'm not a Laurel and Hardy person, so I skipped the intermittent Laurel and Hardys, but uh, the R gangs were great. The sort of the weird little—they're not Hal Roaches, but they're related to Hal Roach, you know, shorts program. And the animation program was terrific. I mean, I'm sure these have all, you know, run on TV and stuff, but they were just great. Thanks to my guests. First of all, Michael Haynes and everyone at Cinevent who helped me corral my interviews and, well, put on a great show. Plus, Irv Drobny and Carrie Black, Morris Everett, Phil Capasso, Samantha Glasser, Leonard Malton, Robert Matson of Goodnight Books, Bob Hodge, Michael Schlesinger, and Joe Aransky and Jessica Rosner. Music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll have more interviews with people at Cinevent in the next episode, on subjects ranging from musicals to the longtime friendship of two Hollywood legends to the projectionist who saved a film format. Be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. I'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks. <laughs>